0: So today is really the kickoff of the series. We had a kind of a maybe part zero a few weeks ago. And some of you were here for that. And uh, part zero was great. Uh, just so you know, computer scientists, we count from zero instead of one. And uh, so if you ever get around me, that's kind of a neat trick that we do. But but it's the zeroth part. And uh, some of you have never heard zeroth. There's first, and then there's zeroth. But, uh, so today we're we're going to be looking at how Christ is in this story of Genesis, and many of you might already have heard that Christ is in that story. Some of you, maybe this is a new concept, but before we get started on actually finding where Jesus just showed up in that passage, because I don't know if you heard it, but I didn't hear his name specifically mentioned during the reading, but... Before we go and look for that, we're gonna just I'm just gonna give a little bit of a, a purpose statement or or what I'm hoping that you're gonna get out of this series over the next you know 10 to 12 weeks, however long it takes. Uh till kingdom come, if it takes that long. But <clears throat> So Christ in the Old Testament. Uh what is the purpose of this series? The purpose of this series, in my opinion, is for you to be able to do a number of things. The first thing is for you to actually enjoy reading your Bible, and that may may sound like an audacious thing. Well, if you don't if you don't enjoy your Bible, you're probably just you know a sinful person, and you know it. It just the the fact is that most of us, when we haven't grown up in the church, or even if we have, we haven't been convinced of the worth of the scriptures. Uh, my brother has a joke, which I totally butcher every time, but he says, due to recent events, you know, uh, a large portion of the scripture gets little attention and the rest is just ignored together, altogether. But, um, as in some, you know, you don't hear ve- very many sermons on Amos, but it's actually the case that instead of never hearing any sermons on a, Am- or only hearing a few sermons on Amos every once in a while, you probably have never heard a sermon on, on Amos. Maybe one or two of you have heard something about Amos. I can't remember one time that I've heard anything about Amos other than Bible class. So, but what that joke means is is that we have lost, in a real functional way, a real a real sad way, we have lost an understanding of the importance of the scriptures as a whole. We tend to focus on the New Testament, and most of us don't know why we do that. Uh, in my opinion, that's a holdover from some ideas that have infected the church, which we're not going to cover today. But really, we we tend to focus on the New Testament, and it's actually the case that the New Testament doesn't make up that very much of the book, and so we are reading very little, and so we're spiritually malnourished. Throughout this series, we're going to look at a number of themes, some that I'm not mentioning today, or not going to cover in detail today, but they're different themes of the Scripture, and we're going to see how Christ is the answer to all the problems in those themes. So three of the themes we're going to look at today are just this idea of covenant theology, It's not really a a narrative theme, but it's just a superimposed theme or a way of looking at all of the scripture. We're going to look at Imago Dei, which is just the the image of God and what that means. And then we're going to look at this concept called types and how things are a type of something else. So some other themes that we're going to cover in this series might be the concept of exile and return. The Israelites are cast out and then they come back or or other themes might be you know blessing and cursing or uh this idea of going down into Egypt and coming back out and all of these things the the way that god protects his people the way that he takes them through cycles of judgment and all of these themes that go throughout the old testament they present in each theme there's a problem and there's and through the through the story the scripture says even this person wasn't able to fix this issue, you know, when we get to David, we might see how David wasn't able to be a righteous king. And even though he was more righteous than all the other kings, he still was sinful. And so what's the, you know, we need a, we need a righteous king. And we're going to, we're going to look at how, if you don't have Christ in the Old Testament, if he never shows up, then there's no resolution to all the problems. And so um, really the purpose of this series is to prove John 5:39. Jesus, talking to the Pharisees, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. Now, just for, a, you know, to help us out, we, you know, we think that's in Matthew. And yes, that's in Matthew. Uh, sorry, that's in John. But, it, you know, it's in the New Testament. But when, he, when Jesus said that, none of the New Testament had been written. So it's not that he's primarily referring to the Old Testament scriptures. He's only referring to the Old Testament scriptures. And so the Old Testament, he said Jesus claims in this verse that all of these testify about me. So uh, it's my it's my conviction that if you don't see Christ every time you read your Bible, you've totally missed the point. And that might sound kind of audacious to you, but I would stand by that claim. And, uh, you know, obviously you can't just read one verse and then say, well, didn't see Jesus in that verse. So John must be wrong. The The main idea here is that if you sit there and you read long enough with the aid of the Holy Spirit and with the right set of training, you will find Jesus in all the scriptures and you will find the source of the scriptures being opened up to you. And you'll find adoration takes place when you read your Bible. And <clears throat> you'll find that you've got joy and power. It's my opinion that if you can't see Christ in the Old Testament then you will read the scriptures less. You'll have less joy because you'll have less victory over sin because we have victory over sin by remembering the promises and warnings that God provides. And those are primarily found in the Old Testament. And so if you don't find Christ in the Old Testament, you also won't be able to understand the new because the new isn't that new. It's just explaining the old. And um, so those kind of things we're going to see throughout this series. We're going to start seeing them today but um, just keep those in mind. So this idea, let's start with covenant theology. God interacts with man through covenant, and he only interacts with man through covenant. God is not just up in the clouds in heaven, deciding what to do on the fly. He's not um, shooting from the hip, as it were. Uh, He's not really concerned with the latest, you know, current events, nor is he really probably checking out whether the drudge report or fox or cnn is getting a more accurate picture of the way the world's going. God works with man through in in man works all things to man. All things that God does to man are come through a covenant and they come through a system of relationship. And so a covenant is what defines how God has chosen to interact with man and these covenants are found in the Old Testament and we're going to look at one of them today. But every covenant has some some primary elements to it. It it has some promises. God says if you obey me, I'm going to bless you with my presence, with protection, with blessing. I'm going to cause the crops to do well. I'm going to cause you to have love in your family, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There's promises. And there's also demands. You don't just get your best life now, without any cost, you actually have to follow through and obey and so there's some demands in each covenant we're going to look this morning at how God gave Adam and Eve a command, but there's also consequences for disobedience and we're very familiar with those consequences. Um, sin and death entered in through this story, and those consequences are God's righteous, not just you know, flying off the cuff in his, you know, zeal and anger, just choosing to punish where he didn't say beforehand he would punish. And in this series, <clears throat> we're going to see how these covenants are really all a part of one covenant that is the eternal covenant that Christ the Father and the Spirit had. Made together, they had purposed in themselves to execute throughout human history, and we 're going to look at how each successive covenant is not a remaking or a changing of the previous covenants. Paul has a great uh, treatise in Galatians three where he basically says that even though the law came four hundred and thirty years later, it did not previously or it did not nullify anything that was previously given, so faith came Abraham believed God in faith, and then the law came. It was grace and then faith. And so covenant theology stands directly opposed to a phrase that you hear in this church all the time called dispensationalism. This idea is that God has chosen to interact with man in different and completely unique ways in basically little, you, you might think of them as silos. God interacts with man in this way, this time, and then he changes it. And we believe that's completely wrong and I think you'll be convinced over this series that really each covenant is just a further unfolding of the eternal covenant of redemption. And so we're going to look today at the start of that covenant, and that's going to be pretty apparent through this theme. The other thing we're going to look at this morning is the Imago Dei, which is a Latin phrase that just means the image of God. We as Christians, it's part of a Christian worldview that we believe that man is all men are created in the image of God and in his likeness. And therefore, because of that, they have inherent value. Uh, There's a movement to save the, you know, whales. And yet we have people all over the earth living in famine and in sickness and in death. And so it's it's a Christian worldview that we should steward the environment, but we're going to go after humans first. Because God has put his image and likeness into that human and that human's present condition of fallenness, whether it's sickness or death or, you know, any sort of thing that, that human deserves, that human deserves to have the gospel, uh, said to them, not because of just anything that they've done, they've actually fallen, but God's in the business of redemption. And so Imago Dei is just this, this concept. We, we, you and I, everyone you meet has inherent value because they've been made in God's image not inherent value because they're just a human it's it's different it's it's not humanism it's actually humanism is actually a perversion of of the view of man and how he relates to God because humanism says God doesn't exist man is the supreme imago dei says God is the supreme and because man is made in in his image man actually has more value in imago dei than just in humanism and so we're going to look at that, but God is the ruler, and, Abra- er, and Adam is a little ruler. And so God created Adam, and because God is a ruler, because God is a creator, Adam is a little our ruler and a little c creator. Adam, being made in the image and likeness of God, cannot help but do the things that God does, but albeit in a limited and kind of you know contained way. You know, Adam is not creating out of nothing. God created out of nothing and Adam is taking taking things and using resources and creating something else. So so God's the creator, Adam's a creator in a little sea. We're not claiming that Adam's God. We're not Mormons. Just to that's what the Mormons actually believe. The the Mormons actually believe that Adam's God <clears throat> or that he became God. It's very odd. Anyway. So To get into today, those are two themes we're going to see, Covenant Theology, Imago Dei. Today, we're going to look at the first and the last Adam, and we're going to look at four elements. Really, you could break it up a number of different ways. We're going to look at four elements of the first Adam and four elements of the last Adam. The first element is the temptation. The second is the fall and death. Third is the judgment. And finally, fourth is the promise. And we're going to see how... Poetically, the Bible equates Adam, and not only poetically explicitly, but poetically equates the first Adam and the last Adam. And so, if you were watching a movie, you would see a number of different frames, and each frame would have a certain amount of color and shape. And when you watch these frames together, there would be motion. And so the language or the, or the communication economy of the way that a movie works is that it uses sound and motion, suspense, um, bright flashes for explosions, and passionate, misty, romantic scenes. The economy of movies is visual. But we're not reading a movie. We're reading the Bible. And so the economy of the Bible is literary device the way that the bible communicates is through repetition through allegory that is saying something is like something else by foreshadowing that is kind of hinting at something like if you were reading a murder mystery novel you might you know find out that oh well the murderer had you know red cuffs and then you might remember you know three chapters prior that you know there were some red threads on the floor of mrs scarlet and you know, eventually you might understand that it was Mrs. Scarlet killing the butler and, you know, who who knows. But as you're reading, all the clues start to come together. And then, you know, you finally understand something after you've been weaving and keeping track of all the little foreshadowings. That's just the, that's just what a foreshadowing is. It's just a little, t- anytime you see something, an element, it doesn't really make sense. Or you think, oh, that's odd. i think I've seen this before. And you start to begin to piece together the the literary function or, or the way that the Bible actually lays these things out. And so the Bible really only has, because it's text and there's no motion, it can't use things like, you know, explosions or, or big giant, giant sounds or a rumbling bass. It has to use things like poetry and line and repeating words in the Hebrew and and poet and, and imagery that is you know <clears throat> in the Psalms David says you know my soul pants and thirsts for you like a deer now David wasn't actually panting like a deer he was saying his soul pants like a it, he was making an analogy and so um, you know th- that's the way the Bible talks and not only is there analogy there's also metaphor and there's types types are are something that we're gonna to see today. But here in the scriptures, the way that the way that things are, are unfolded, the way that things are explained are through literary devices. And so we're gonna see how there's a complete mirror between the first Adam and the last Adam. First is this temptation in the garden. Satan comes into the garden and he comes as a serpent. And in Genesis three one, his question, he his leading statement is Indeed has God said. And he speaks to Eve, and Eve listens. That was her first mistake. She she begins to listen to Satan's miscommunication. He, Satan didn't say anything wrong. He just misquoted God's command. And he actually has this strategy. And he, this is the same strategy that he brings to you. The strategy is this, is first to, to uh, doubt God's word, and then to get you to deny God's word, to, to get you to agree with him that what he believes God's word says is right, instead of what God's word actually just says being right. And then finally, he gets you to become discontent with your state. He convinced Eve, in this case, of the gain, the illicit or wrong gain to be had by taking from the tree before she was allowed to eat. And so here Satan comes and, and he, he basically tempts Eve with, if, if you eat this, God knows that when you do this, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. So what was the deceit that he placed in front of her? Well, Imago Dei says that she already was like God. And so she, Satan got Eve to doubt and in turn got Adam to doubt Adam's position before God. That God is, is this loving creator who has placed Adam and Eve in a garden with protective boundaries, training them up, allowing them to eat of anything except for one tree. And yet Satan said, you know, God actually knows what's going to happen when you eat of this tree. He knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened and you'll, be, you'll become like him. And what was, the, what was the doubt? She had to doubt that she wasn't already like God in some special way. She had to doubt that God was distant from her, that she didn't have fellowship and communion with God. And so here Eve buys into the doubt. She says, well, I want to take, I want to be like God, not knowing and questioning and denying her previous understanding that she came from Adam and that Adam and Eve both together came from God. And this is his strategy with you. Satan's strategy with you is to get you to doubt God's word. Indeed, has God said, has he actually given the word of God? Is the scripture actually authoritative? Did the apostle Paul really write that book? That's the way Satan speaks. And if you're not armed with an understanding of the old Testament as being valuable because you can't see Christ there, then he's already won. And so my, my main, my main plea with you this morning is to, to, be looking for Christ in the Old Testament. Then then next comes the fall. In listening to the counsel of his wife, Adam and Eve both together, Adam fell, he joined in the rebellion of Satan, and there was the actual very thing that Adam and Eve doubted in their communion and relationship to God, that actually was suspended. Adam was the representative of the human race, and his decision to obey or not obey God in that moment has had lasting consequences for you, I, all humans. In Adam and Eve, somehow in the way that God views the world, which is different than the way we view things, we're very natural minded, but in some real way, we all were in Adam and we all took part in his sin. Now that may sound kind of mysterious, probably a little new agey, but uh, it's actually part of the new age to be materialistic and anti-spiritual versus to know that spiritual realities exist. In some real way, the way that God counts things, we were all responsible. At, that is, Adam's sin has been imputed to us. Adam was given a command in Genesis 1, through 30 to fulfill, to fill it and to subdue the earth, to make it useful for God and his purposes. Their eyes were opened when they ate and shame and accusation came in. And because he disobeyed God, the effects of that transgression have passed to every single person. Adam had fallen and we had fallen with him. And Adam's sin is said to be imputed to us. That's a very important thing for you to understand, imputed. It just means that somehow God counts it on on us as well. So death has entered in through, through Adam. God comes and he makes a judgment. This is a pattern. Uh, god God acts, and then he comes and evaluates that's that 's a huge pattern of of the Old Testament, one that we probably won 't focus on but in in the previous days, this was the sixth day that god had God made Adam and Eve on the sixth day He comes and he looks at his creation and he evaluates he makes a judgment he pronounces that it 's good. The previous days he had you know separated the light from the darkness and the land from the sea. And every time he does something, he comes and he looks, he makes an evaluation, he passes judgment. And so God comes, there's this repetition. God comes into the garden and he comes and he makes a judgment. And by coming and judging, God is actually keeping covenant. It's not that God is punishing outside of covenant. He's actually keeping covenant, whereas Adam had just broken covenant. And so God comes and makes a judgment. In Genesis 3:16 through 19, there is pain in bringing new life, that evil experience. And, and Adam is told that the ground is cursed because of you. And by the sweat of your brow, you're going to have to work hard to eat of it. God subjects all of creation to futility. You can see that in Romans 8, if you want, later. Hoping that there would be a a redemption. And so Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. They're the first exiles, really. They are cast out of, of the garden and they have no access to the communion or life of God that's to be found in the cool or the spirit of the day where God comes and walks and talks with Adam and Eve. And so they've been removed out of the garden and there's this problem now. Sin has caused a separation between Adam and God. And how can you restore a holy God with, a, with an unrighteous, sinful person? Well, there's, there's a problem and because of this problem, the whole creation is subjected to futility. Adam's going to die. His wife's going to die. There's going to be pain in their childbirth. This is terrible. Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden and the very thing that they doubted, their relationship with God, has now caused there to be a separation. In the midst of judgment, God has mercy. In his telling of, Uh, And God's telling Satan that he's going to have to crawl on his belly. There is this foreshadowing that we might see here of Christ. And in Genesis 3.15, it says, God says, And I will put enmity, enmity means strife or hatred or animosity or conflict. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Hmm, well, we're looking for a seed now. It's my opinion, and the opinion of the scripture, that Jesus is that seed. But he's not only that seed, he's also the last Adam. Whereas Adam had fallen, Christ is totally victorious. Adam went through temptations, falls, judgments, and promises, and through Christ, we see that exact same pattern. Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness after his baptism. And during that time, Satan came to Jesus and had a temptation for him. And every time Satan tempts Jesus, he says, if you are the son of God, do this, or if you are the son of God, do that. And Satan's accusation and the way that he was attempting to Get Jesus to, to fall was to have Jesus prove that he was God. Because if Jesus proves that he's the son of God, then what that means is that Jesus first had to internally doubt that he was God's son. He had to first internally doubt God's word, what God said about him. And Satan wanted Jesus to prove it, but Jesus was firm and returned Satan's attacks with God's word. Whereas Adam had failed to protect his wife against Satan, Jesus fended off Satan's attacks by using God's word as his source of life. He tried to show Jesus the advantage of not going through the cross by allowing him to say, you know, if you worship me, I will give you the kingdoms of the earth. Jesus knew that he was coming to take the kingdoms of the earth, and Satan provided that illicit gain. When when Satan had said to Eve and Adam, God knows that when you take this, your eyes are going to be open and you're going to be like God. And his temptation mirrored that when he came to Jesus and said, if you bow down and worship me, then you'll gain the kingdoms of the earth without having to go through the cross. And Jesus would have none of it. But not only is there a temptation, there also is a fall, but it's not the same type of fall. The fall is different. This time it's it's a death. Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Not only is there a death, but there's also a judgment. But in this case, instead of God pronouncing a judgment against Christ, the last Adam, he makes a judgment for those who would come after the last Adam, those who would be a part of the last Adam's uh, line. Romans 5, 1-2, through 2, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. So, so in verse one, it says, therefore, having been justified by faith, God made a judgment that those who in faith responded to the message of the gospel, they're counted as just. A holy God takes sinners and puts them up in, in his courtroom. And by the work of Christ, they responding in faith to that work are counted as Justified. They are counted as righteous and that righteous is an alien righteousness. It comes from Christ. Our sins are transferred to him and there's this great exchange that's made. And so there is a judgment, but it's a different type of judgment. And then finally, there's a promise. Romans 5, 9 through 11. Much more than having been now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more than having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. The message of the promise of the new covenant that the last Adam establishes is that not only are we saved by faith, but we're also going to be saved in not only now, but in the future, we're going to be raised from the dead and, and, and live in newness of life through him. So the first and the last Adam. In, in the old Adam, we all die, and in the last Adam, we have eternal life so that we will never die. The Apostle Paul brings out this contrast vividly when he wrote in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty, for as in Adam all die, so also in, all, in Christ all will be made alive. <clears throat> Whereas Adam spurned the love of God, remember we we saw how Adam doubted his relationship with God, Christ standed firm on his relationship. The first Adam brought about death, but the last Adam brought about eternal life. The first Adam brought condemnation, but the second Adam, the, the last Adam, he brought resurrection and justification. Adam's disobedience and its consequences were passed on to all who would come after him, yet by those who respond in faith and repent, Christ's righteousness is applied to all of those who come after him. Adam stood for many and brought death upon all, and Jesus Christ stood for many and brings eternal life to all who place their trust in him. And so I want to prove to you that doing something like that, creating an allegory or a parallelism, is not my invention. Um, It's just Paul's comments in Romans 5. We've read a little bit of the chapter. We're going to finish it. Picking up back in verse 12, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all had sinned, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. All that means is sin is not transferred if there's not a law or a covenant. Because God had made a law and a covenant with Adam, that sin was transferred on down the line. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Verse 15, But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. This is very important. Verse 16, The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned for on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from, for many, from many transgressions resulting in justification. And then verse 17, for if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Not all men have been saved by Christ's work. Verse 19 is, as when we get to it, if, you, if you'd never read verse 17, you might think that from verse 19. But verse 17 clearly states, much more those who receive the abundance of grace. If it says those who receive, it means there's those who don't receive. So just to make that clear. Verse 18, so then as one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Verse 19, for as though the one man's disobedience, for as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So then as sin de- reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is my goal through this series that by clear exposition of the Old Testament and by showing how the New Testament writers have laid that, tra- uh, that tradition, that you would be able to see Christ in every time that you read the scriptures. It's not apparent that Jesus initially is the fulfillment of the promise that the seed would come from Eve and she would, and that seed would crush Satan's head. But that is what Christ has done on the cross for both you and I. Where we were trapped under the law and we were trapped in sin, Christ came and put to death sin and the power of Satan over us on that cross. And in so doing, he has become our new head. Whereas Adam was our father and our the the head of our line, now those who in faith repent and turn to Christ, become they come underneath Christ as, as Christ becomes their new head. So you are no longer, if you're in Christ, you are no longer trapped under the law in sin and in death. You actually have tra- been transferred into the line of Christ. And so... There are those two competing lines. And Adam, where he died and though he lived a long time afterwards, he he died and was subjected to futility all of his life. Christ has come and redeemed us from being trapped in Adam's sin. And so with that, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the message of your word. We ask you that over these next 10 to 12 weeks, we ask you that you would open our eyes to see and adore Christ in the Old Testament, that every time he's mentioned or pointed to, that we would see the the necessity of his showing up on the scene, that we would see him coming and the promise of his future coming as something that we look back to, whereas the Hebrews were looking forward. And we ask God that you would help us see and savor Christ in the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus' name. Amen.